Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Good morning. Actually, it's a great morning. Is that a greeting? Great morning. It is a great morning. Here's why. We, this is, we're going to look at a passage today we've been praying for for almost a month. We're going to have communion today. That's a great thing. But uh, listen, words can change a life. These words we're going to look at, they, they transform people. We're going to go to the depths. We're going to try to go to the depths of what it means to have an uncommon Savior. These seven sentences, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, these seven sentences have been revolutionizing human experience for 2,000 years. This is it. This is what we're looking at. Now, before we get um, going into the passage itself, it's important that we have context of why Paul's writing this and, and how's it's being applied. So let's just review from a couple week, from two weeks ago. What, what's the problem and what's the solution? The problem is, is that we live conceited lives and, and conceit destroys and explodes, alienates any healthy relationship in any stage of relationship. Uh, empty conceit, that's conceit. Okay? Um, selfish ambition that will put stress on family relations, marital relations, work atmosphere because people are being selfishly ambitious for their own things. Pride. In a word, pride. Pride is the hammer that pounds into, ga- into gravel our spiritual lives, our spiritual intimacy with God and intimacy with other people. Pride. Like me first my way. That's the problem. And that's why Paul had, this is his solution. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. So do nothing in selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, regard one another as better than yourselves. So the, the problem is we are compulsively addicted to our own agenda. We are driven by this. There's always an angle for us, and the solution is to humbly consider other people more important than ourselves. And humility, what is humility? Humility asks the question, what are you thinking about? Humility is, is not uh, thinking badly of yourself because you're thinking of yourself again. It, it, you know, it's not a person that's complaining that they're, they, you know, they have inadequacies or they're constantly kind of beating themselves up. That's not humility. Clearly, humility is not uh, proud boasting. That's simple enough. But humility isn't thinking of yourself less, it's, or less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is self-forgetfulness. It's the innocence we lost, self-forgetfulness. And if we have that humility of self-forget, that gift of self-forgetfulness, then we can enjoy our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. How do you get humility? Paul says, you have to focus, it's simple, right? You have to focus on something besides yourself, something greater than yourself. And he would say, someone greater than yourself. He would say, you need to be captivated and fixated. If you want to get this fixed, you have to be fixated on on Christ. You need to have a biblical doctrine in the heart of your soul that energizes your, your, your reason for living. It is supposed to be something that you pray. You praise Christ and the Father and let the power of God's Spirit work in your life so that it captures your imagination. It does the distracting for you, and you become self-forgetful at that point. That's why Paul says in verse 5, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. 
Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Humility is, is um, not something you have. Humility is a byproduct of desiring something that's greater than your own ego. Humility comes when you desire something greater than your own wants or con- your own conceits, your own ambitions. And so gaze. Gaze on who Jesus Christ is. Gaze on what Jesus Christ has done. And that's what this sentences, these seven sentences do. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 are written in a way so that you would memorize it, that you would sing it in your soul. It's a hymn. You can see in a, if, if your Bible's written um, on dead trees, right, the, the paper-type Bibles, you'll see that they're written in stanzas because uh, they, they, it, it's, it's very careful. All the words are chosen. They're, they're uh, symmetrical in, so that they're logically symmetrical so it's easy to grasp in the intellect part of your, of your brain and then they're to be sung as well to accentuate the right side of your brain. It's not the only hymn in the Bible, but this is the hymn of all hymns. This is the center point for Philippians. It is the center point for New Testament writing. It's, a, it's the focal point of Christianity. Now, because of its significance and the density of it, what my outline today is going to be, I'm going to spend you know, our remaining time, I'll split it in half. In the first half, I'm going to spend trying to teach, you know, help us understand what it says, and then, and then I'll look at what it means. Okay? What it says, there's so many important words, we're going to have to stop and hold them up one at a time so that we can better understand what it says. And then we're going to say, okay, now, how does it re-energize our life? How does this captivate our souls, right? How does it electrify our mind and transform our, our, our hearts? That's what we'll look at later on. Right now, we'll look at what does it say? Well, this, the, the hymn, as I mentioned, is in three movements. The first movement is the description of, of Jesus' life before his existence on earth, before Bethlehem, what life was like for him then. And then in the middle, it'll be life on earth between Bethlehem and Golgotha. And then at the very end, it finishes up nicely on what life in the, in the life of Christ is like in heaven. Now, while all that is a good way to understand and how to memorize it, what's most important in this section of Scripture and why it brings so much to our understanding and transformational potential is because it tells us the mind of Christ. Paul said, let you have the same mind that is in Jesus Christ. This is the mind of Christ. This is what, we know this will tell what he did, but it'll tell why he did it. If we can grasp that, if we can have the same mind that he had, then we'll have humility. We'll have experience and intimacy with each other, but with God in, in untold ways. Okay? That's what we're going after. That's our goal. So let's start with the first stanza or the first uh, movement here in pre-Bethlehem, pre-existence. Verse 5 says, Now in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset that was in Christ Jesus. What is that? Well, who, being in the very nature, the word is form, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or exploited, or used to his own advantage. Two huge phrases here are words that we have to know the meanings of. The first one, form. In the very existence of God, um, the very nature of God, the word form is used. It'll be used in the next sentence, so pay attention. Form, the definition of form, is when you have your out, your exterior visible ex- uh, experience that is completely in uh, correspondence with the inner essence. Okay. The outside looks like the inside essence. If essence is a philosophical word, so let me try to explain what that is so that we'll know what, what Jesus was when he was in the form of God. 
If I were to describe to you the essence of redness, I would have a ball up here and it would be red. It would define the word red. And if I split this red ball in half, every part inside of it would be that exact same redness. If I had a, a sledgehammer and I, and I hit it hard enough and it would shatter, every shard would have this Redness. We could go microscopic, okay? It, almost like an element, right? Like the element of gold. And we'd go into subatomic particles and they would be, look, it's red. It's the exact same redness. That's what essence means. That's what form means. Point being, Jesus was in the essence of God, in the very form of God. In the, in, he is fully God. He sat at the throne with the Father and ruled all of creation. He um, uh, was adored by angels and worshiped by them, and they served him. He created all things, all things, just created all things. He brought this planet into existence, and you and I, he breathed into the nostrils of Adam and made him live. He fully God. Colossians 1, Paul writes this, Jesus in the image of the invisible God, the outside of what was essentially inside. For him, all things in heaven and earth were created, things visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him, for himself is before he himself is before all things, and in him all things are held together. Have this mindset that was in Christ Jesus, though his essence, his very essence was fullness of deity, is God. Okay? He did not consider that essence to be something to be grasped, held onto, um, some say taken advantage of, enjoyed, grasped, right? If you look at uh, what animal has uh, the most fierce grasping potential, I think you'll find the harpy eagle comes right up in there. His talon strength is over 550 pounds per square inch. And what, I mean, it's able to crush bones. That's the grasp of a harpy eagle. How do you, how do you get, say, a fish, some food from the claws of a harpy eagle who's sitting hungry? Well, you, you can't get it from him. You would ask politely, and if he chose, he would, he would no longer grasp it and share that with you. That's the only way. Point is, have this mind that is also in Christ. How did he, with the grasp of a divine being, how was he able to consider that his form of God was not something to be grasped? He was asked politely by the Father, would you consider that that your fullness of God would not be something that you would hold on to. It wouldn't be something that you would use to your advantage to be exploited. And the son, my only begotten son, the son said, I will. I will consider that. This is the mindset we're supposed to have. In, in this very form. And this is, where it, this is where it leads to. This is where it leads to. Um, verse 7. Rather, okay, he made himself nothing and taking on the very nature. There's the word again. The very form, the very nature, the very form of a servant and being made in, the, in human likeness. Form, essence. So the point is that just as he was fully God on the outside but also on the inside, if you cut him open, fully man on the outside as he, in, as he is on the inside. He is fully God and fully man. Every atom of him is man. 
Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? It, it, it doesn't mean that he set his deity aside. He didn't let go of that. He added to. Right? He did not consider his deity something to be grasped, but added to what? His, this servanthood became a slave, it says. And what that means is, is he didn't exploit the fact that he was divine. And so he, as, a, as God, he knew everything, but in his obedience... He chose to learn how to use a spoon and the alphabet because that's what the Father had called him to do. He he was the creator of all heaven and earth, all things that are visible and invisible. But in his obedience, he chose to starve to death in the desert for 40 days, starve himself near to death in the desert. And the temptation was not to... Uh, change a, a rock into bread, the temptation was to disobey what the Father asked him to consider, that he wouldn't use his form of God in any way towards his advantage. He was tempted to use that, and he could do that, but he chose not to do that. He had authority over all the angelic realm, and in his last temptation, in the last temptation of Christ, when the people were saying to him, he saved others, he can save himself. But he chose not to. He chose instead to obey and not consider his, his, the form of God that he had as something to be exploited. And he let himself be killed. That's what it means. Now, some of you are probably thinking ahead, well, wait, he did miracles. He fed 5,000. He healed people, walked on water. He, absolutely, he did. He, that was, he, in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, it says, the, the Father had given him the Spirit who gave him power to do things. So it wasn't in his divine ability to do that, but rather in the Spirit's ability to do that. And it was always, it was always for other people and never for his own comfort. And, and so the, the point is, is that God allowed Jesus to humble himself to be the point of not a human, it says a slave, a servant. And he didn't send him here to be a king among us or even part of a, a prestigious family of Rome. He sent him to a poor couple in a conquered country, right, uh, in a, in a no-count backwater town, Nazareth. I mean, mean, there's a figure of speech that went around. It was on bumper stickers. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, yeah, there is one person that's pretty good that came from there, yeah. And God sent him there for a purpose. So before we move on to the next section, I want to apply this first and foremost because I think we miss this part of his full humanity. The, 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 The part of his... Uh, humiliation that says that he's fully man. He's in the form of, he's in the essence of a man. This is how we connect to God. He understands us in every way but sin. And, and the, listen, the reason you read the gospels, well, I'm sorry, one of the reasons you read the gospel is to realize there is a lot of overlap between your experience in this human uh, endeavor and his experience. Have you ever been betrayed? Jesus says, I have. Have you ever been feeling the feeling of absolute aloneness? Jesus says, I have. Have you, have you feared death and faced death? He says, I've done that too. You see, the, the, we'll spend more time on this in Easter, but the point is, is that he's a wonderful counselor because he understands us as full human beings. 
And you'll see, if you read the Gospels in that context, you find yourself praying and relating to him in your greatest joys and your deepest sorrows. He says, yeah, me too. And you say, we have so much in common. And I feel like sometimes people fail to understand the absolute humanness, the total essence, the form of his humanness. And Paul says, no, no, no. He was just like us in every way but sin. Well, his decision to consider that his deity was not something to be grasped, it, the, it continues. The descent continues. In verse 7 and 8, it says, and, and rather he made himself to nothing to the very nature or form of a servant being made in the human likeness. And he found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself in becoming obedient to death, death even on the cross. Obedient until death. Look at the repetition. Death. Death even on a cross. Clearly, the writer is trying to show us the, the, the depth of which this God-man has descended. It is at the pit. It, this crucifixion, death, death even on a cross, becomes a point of the sharpest imaginable contrast that, that any man could ever conceive. It's been said, God on a cross. God on a cross. That's what the writer here is saying. Look, how, look where he went. This is what he did. Look at the extent of what's happened. God on a cross. <laughs> Crucifixion was the most painful and humiliating, right? There's, there's physical pain and there's psychological shame in, in this at the time in this part of the world. And it was, it was purposeful. If you were a Roman citizen, it was illegal for you to even die this way. Jews saw it, even in the Old Testament, said it, you know, it is wicked and shameful for a man to be hung on a tree. You had to have, be in a very special category of humiliation and, and, and depravity to be killed in this way. But listen, here's the point. Here's the point. This is the heart of the theology of Christ. Okay? This is the essence of who he is and what he did. God on a cross, that's what it's about. That's what this passage is about, right? And, and listen, this is not, when Paul wrote this and he's quoting this hymn, he, he wasn't writing us, the cross is not a piece of jewelry we hang from our, our necks or, right, or, or embezzle on, or embalm, what do you call it? Put on our Bibles, what do you call it? Emboss? Emboss on Bibles? We put them on our church. If your family member died on the cross, we didn't talk about that family member again. And this is the mindset of Christ. What is the mindset of Christ? Obedience to the end. To the absolute expression of humiliation. That's the mindset. Have this mindset in Christ that he did not consider his deity this way. This mindset of obedience to the end. And then, and the chain, and then verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. The name of Jesus. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus exalts him. Here's a wonderful quote about the story, this, this arch. When his downward descent had reached the furthest depth, and when he died a criminal's death and was buried in a borrowed grave, when he became a forgotten servant, abandoned and ignored by most, when he was carrying the interests of others and had take, that had taken his life 
and that had brought them to God, and when it looked like the bottom would swallow him up forever, God raised him up. God highly exalted him. The point of that quote is that the scandal of God's humiliation is his glory. The scandal of God's humiliation is his glory. The things that we use to mock him, God on the cross, is the thing that shows who he is and what he's like. This is the mind of Christ. And so even even in the architectural design, the men and women that designed this building had that in mind, that that the thorny crown that that was made to mock and humiliate his frailty, right, and his, and his inability to even defend himself is now a crown that he uses to rule all of created things. The, the juxtaposition could not be farther or greater. It's all but infinite. And then the, this cross, right? This, this cross, even death, death, even on a cross. When the men and women designed this building, said it becomes a scepter. Because it defines the nature of God and what God is like. And through this crown of thorns and the scepter of a cross, God shows that he was humiliated, but that's his glory. We just wanted maybe 300 people, 300,000 people a day to see that. That's, That's the story of Christianity. That's the story that's here. That's what it says. That's what the passage means or says, this is what it means. This is where we take it and we say, okay, listen, this is is the part that gets into our souls that can transform us. The three movements, the story, we start high, we go to this depth of low, and we, we return to this height that's even higher still, okay? The whole thing hinges on one word. It pivots. Either happens or doesn't on a single phrase, and that phrase is the why. This is the mind of Christ, okay? that he did not consider, that's where it is, that he did not consider. This is what he was thinking. This is why he did it. He did not consider that the form of God that was him, his essence, was something to be grasped, to be held onto, right, To, to, uh, to be exploited for his own. All of salvation history flows from that one hinge. All of it all of it comes out of the heart of the text, the heart of Christianity, the heart of the Bible, the heart of God is summarized in this one thing, that he considered this. Let this be the mind that you have, which is also in Christ Jesus, though in the very form of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, exploited, used to his advantage. Why? When he's considering not holding on to that, why would he choose that? Well, love is an answer. I mean, love is an answer, but it's not really an answer. Uh, Psalm 8's a great psalm. David says, when I see the majesty of all creation, who is man that you would care for him? There's no reason. I mean, why would he love us? I, I don't know why he loves us, but I do, though, I know this that he chose to love us, and because he chose to love us, one of the reasons he considered that his deity was not something um, to be held on to was because he felt like we were, we were somehow worth the sacrifice. He, I mean, he essentially 
the verse would go like this. For God so loved the world, that the Father so loved the world, that he asked his only begotten son, that he would consider, that he would just consider that his deity would not be something to be held on to, but he would, he would add his servanthood to that and humiliation to that so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. He did it out of love, and here's why. Because <laughs> here's the only way to, he's, he, his coming here and that crucifixion is the only way to fix us. Friends, this is, tr- this is the absolute essential truth. It came down to this. It was either him or me. It was him or you. Someone's going to die for your sins. Okay? He holds on to his glory. We spend eternity in isolation in, in hell without him. He lays aside that glory, and we can live. It's that simple, and we know this to be true. It, it finds itself in so many of our stories, this, this certainty that's, that he had to come. If we could have a righteousness on our own works, then Christ died needlessly. But, I mean, I was watching some kid's cartoon the other day, Inside Out, and there's a Christ figure experience happening. He will have to die. It's the only way that someone else will live. It keeps showing up because we know it's, it's been implanted in us. And before we move on to a more profound reason for what he was considering, I want you to answer this. Are you trusting this uncommon Savior? This one. We're talking about that's defined in the Bible that says you bring nothing but illness and sin and rebellion to the relationship, and Jesus brings all of the humility and righteousness to that. If you think attending church or being good brings you anything t- closer to God, then you've misunderstood why He came. You don't know who you are, and you don't know what He is and what He's done. And I want you to consider we're going to take communion in a few moments, and I want maybe today be the first day where you say, All I bring are filthy rags that I've dressed up and called righteous, but not anymore. Because after seeing this and understanding the depth of this, I come on faith alone in Christ alone. Would you you consider that? Why did he do this? When, When he considered, have this mind that was also in Christ, that he did not consider his deity, his God, his form of God as something to be grasped. It was for love. Yep, but listen, it's fun. Here's the thing. It's, you are never mentioned in this passage. I'm not mentioned in this passage. Love is not mentioned in this passage. Love is it, but that's another verse. It's not mentioned here. Here's what he considered. When he considered not grasping, he, he considered the nature of God. And it is within the nature of God to serve. It is within the nature of God to serve. He contemplated this thought, that it is compatible with a divine being to serve. He did not lay aside his divinity. That's impossible. Couldn't happen. What he he was able to consider was that he could maintain his divine being and take on flesh and serve to the point of death, death even on a cross. Because that's the nature of God. That's the uncommon Savior from an uncommon God. Who could imagine such a thing about an attribute of God? Humble. Look, look here's, here's a quote from somebody that is clearly smart because he has three initials 
and it must be true. So, okay, it's better than the internet. Divine equality does not mean getting, but giving. It is properly expressed in self-giving love. He became a servant because he was expressing what God is like, divinity. He was expressing what God is like. He, He chose, he considered this, I will show the world, all of creation, that God is displayed in a cradle and with a towel and a cross. That's the God you serve. It is not beneath God to do this. It is actually like God to do this. This title that Jesus receives, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess, that on earth and above the earth and below the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord, when does he get knighted for that? Not at the resurrection, not at the ascension, In the, in the context of his humiliation, at the depth of his humiliation, in the most intimate conversation that he ever has with his followers, and he's hoping that they're far enough along to understand what he's talking about, he talks about his next few hours being on the cross. Death. Death even on a cross. And then he says this in John chapter 17. And after this, after he tells him that, after Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, now that's time. Now the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me. I have been obedient and I never grasped my deity for my own purpose. I never exploited my godness. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed, before Bethlehem. Bring me back to that glory. Bring it to me now because I've done what you told me to do. And, and, and in, doing that, in, that, in doing that, I showed what God is like. Be of this mind. Be of this mind. That it is like God to humble himself. This is, here's, okay, nutshell, here it is. This is the way God is. This is the way creation is. This is the way we were made to be. Do you see the trajectory? I mean, there's a pattern here. Do you want to go up? You go down. Right? Do you want to be rich? Be generous. Do you want to rule? then serve. Do you want to be happy? Then turn away from your vain conceit. Stop worshiping your ego. These are not new words. These are the teachings of Jesus Christ. But in this passage, it's that on display very succinctly. And to the degree that you and I comprehend this, to the degree that you and I allow this to incite a revolution within our souls it is the same degree to which we experience the Christian life, intimacy with one another, and fellowship with God. This is the pattern of God. This is the pattern of Christ. This is the pattern of creation. This is the pattern of you. This is what we were meant to be. Here's, here's the question, really, honestly. Right, right. Here we go. Fundamentals. Do you really want what you want? Or do you want to be whole? I, 
I heard someone teaching on this passage, and, and he, he, just, he just applied the, the meaning of this passage in the context in which it was said. It, memorize this hymn. Memorize this hymn. Get it inside of the way you're thinking and, and take on the mind of Christ and then apply it. Again, as one person said, he, he, just, he said, fill in these blanks. If, if Christ was willing to be in a cradle, you'd be willing to serve a freshman. You know, eat at the freshman table, senior, right? If Christ uh, was willing to wash feet, maybe you'd be willing to not be so petty in your arguments with your husband or wife. Could you do that? Could, could you not grasp something like a reputation? If Christ was willing to endure death, death even on a Christ, cross, could you, could you forgive? Could you bury a hatchet? Could you have the mind of Christ? Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but in humility consider one another's at this attitude that was the same in Christ Jesus. Let's take communion together with a whole new understanding of who was there when, it, when the original communion was done. Let's, now that we grasped what he was talking about on that night that he was betrayed, let's take communion this way. If you guys will get the elements, start passing them out as soon as you can. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.